Well, as Mike said, my name is Nick. Uh, my family and I are members here. I uh, serve on the worship team. My wife serves in Hope Kids, and uh, we assist uh, in our youth ministry as well. And as Mike had mentioned, we are heading to Pastors College in August and uh, returning to you in May, Lord willing. And I just want to take this moment right now to say thank you guys so much for the encouraging words, the prayers, and the, the financial the financial giving is just, I, it's God, man. I, I can't even explain it. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I'm so humbled to be here today. Thankful for the opportunity to, to uh, worship through song and, and preaching of the word. Man, if you guys could just stand up here in the front one time and just hear the congregation, man, what a beautiful picture of heaven one day. So excited for that. We are in uh, the second week of our Revelation series, The Lamb Who Conquered. And today we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And I hope uh, you guys had a chance to check out uh, some of the resources, the Digging Deeper workshops. Those are so good. The podcasts are very helpful. And if, if you can, take a minute to, to check those out. They, they've been very helpful for me in preparing my heart and minds to better understand uh, this book of Revelation. I do want to say special thanks to, to Josh West and Jennifer Gunther for just their efforts uh, and putting all that material together. So thank you guys um, for that. Well, research confirms that the highest divorce rate in America is among empty nesters. And an empty nester, if you don't know, is a husband and wife who have finally sent their last child out of the home, leaving them alone with each other once again after years of, or sometimes decades of, child-rearing. One of the many reasons they contribute to this heartbreaking statistic is because after years of them focusing on their careers and their, their children and pouring out much of their energy into that, they've become distracted. They've become distracted by and many times consumed with their labor and toil for their children and their careers. Because of this, they're Relationship to one another begins to grow cold and distant. Their affections that they once had for one another have slowly faded over time, and perhaps without them even realizing it. They have abandoned their first love to one another. And unfortunately, some of you may have experienced this very thing. I was 25 when I got that phone call. 25, 33 years of marriage, your mom and I are getting a divorce. My opinion, I don't care how old you are, that still hurts. That still hurts. Church, if we're not careful, the same thing can happen to us in our relationship with Jesus. In today's text, we're going to see Christ's warning to his church about a similar situation. As we heard last week from Mike in Revelation chapter 1, the Apostle John, the author of the book of Revelation, dictated from Jesus to him, is on the island of Patmos. He's in exile. The church is amidst persecution, and he's there for preaching the gospel. John is visited by Christ, and he's told to write down what he sees and send it to the seven churches. And our text today is the first letter in the series of seven to the seven different churches uh, that are in Asia Minor, what's today known as Western Turkey. 
And as we progress through these letters over the next several weeks, we'll notice they follow a similar format. I don't know if it'll be up on the screen. We're going to see the introduction. This is a description of Christ Himself, a commendation for many of the churches, a rebuke or correction for some, a solution or a command, a consequence for some, and finally a promise for conquerors. That's kind of how we're going to see these these letters play out over the next couple of weeks. And a a key thing that we want to notice here and and we cannot miss is this this vision of the Son of Man that we saw in chapter 1 that that John gave us, that beautiful picture of Christ that we're going to see play out that's woven through these letters in the book of Revelation. Commentator G.K. Beale says it like this, it's clear that the introductions of the seven letters and the introductory Son of Man vision pertain to the same general time period and mutually interpret one another. This further underlines our point that the events being described in the visions were already occurring when John was writing. The content of this vision mirrors the letters which were addressed to the present situation of the seven churches. If the seven churches are also representative of the universal church, then the contents of both the letters and the visions are applicable to the church throughout the ages. So although these letters are not written to us, risen hope, they are for us. So we're in Ephesus, a major port city in the center of a major postal and trade route in in Asia Minor. It was a happening city. One theologian called it the Vanity Fair of the Roman Empire. So from a religious standpoint, Ephesus was the center for the worship of the Temple of Artemis, or Temple of Diana. She was the most sacred goddess, the fertility goddess in all of civilized ancient Greco-Roman world. This is the temple where, where she was worshipped, had a jail that housed criminals. It was a sort of a bank where kings kept their treasures. It was a marketplace for business, and the big business was selling idols to hang around your neck or put on your chariot and worship at home. This is the Ephesian culture. The worship that happened in this temple was a type of hysteria, of drunkenness and debauchery, prostitutes and dancing, frenzies of mutilation. As one said that the morals of the temple were worse than those of animals, and that the people who engaged in it were only fit to be drowned. Welcome to Ephesus. And huddled in the middle of this pagan city is this group of men and women who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Enduring patiently, they're sharing the message of Christ, they're enduring patiently, being saved out of this very culture, persecuted for their faith, being taught by Paul and Timothy, Tychicus, Aquila, Priscilla, and John. They're preaching to the point where riots are breaking out. So, if you have your Bibles, if you would, go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. will be verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, 
who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So point number one today is Jesus is with His church, and Jesus commands, commends His church. We're going to be verses, look at verses one through three, we're also going to, well, we're going to pull verse six up into this. So each of the messages to the seven churches begins with this description or self-disclosure of Jesus, right? It establishes the identity of the one who speaks, The risen Christ is both sovereign power and intimate knowledge. The lampstands are the churches. The stars are the angels that represent them. And this picture that we have here is is that Jesus sovereignly holds the angels and walks among the seven lampstands. This once again is proof of Jesus' promise of God with us. The God who is present with His people knows them intimately so He can speak specifically. That is why the very next words are, I know your works. The God who dwells with us, He knows us, and He loves us. Church, this is the King of the universe speaking, the one who holds everything in His hands. He's in our midst, chapter 1, verse 13. He walks among us, chapter 2, verse 1. He is not distant. He's with us, and He is in control. The Son of Man the ancient of days, with the eyes like the flame of fire that looks intently with passion and judgment on his church and has a mouth that produces the sharpest of two-edged swords that corrects and comforts, promises truth and life. The one who holds the universe in his hands, he walks among his church. He commends them. Church, this is a place that I'd want to be a part of. Like, these guys have got it. They're being commended by Christ Himself. Like, I want to join First Baptist Ephesus. Sorry, Sovereign Grace Church at Ephesus. They know and understand the Word, right? They can look at an apostle. They can take his teaching. They put it up against God's Word, and they say, nuh-uh, not an apostle. They can distinguish whether his teaching is right and true. This church is doctrinally solid. In Ephesus, they were taught by the best. We see in Acts, Apollos, an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures, instructed in the way of Lord, was speaking and teaching there. It's Acts 18. Aquila and Priscilla were so solid that they actually corrected Apollos on a few things. Acts 18.26 says they explained the way of God more accurately to him. Paul is there training and retraining pastors, as we know, and later Timothy pastors this church, Tychicus, and finally the great apostle John. So can we imagine this? 
Sunday gathering, we come in, we're sitting under the preaching and teaching of Paul and John. No offense to my elders, I love you guys. But these guys wrote Scripture. That's the teaching that they're sitting under. We have to say that they have the best of it. They get it. They had a strong beginning. They were enduring patiently, they were, which means they were suffering well. Are we enduring patiently? Are we doing it with an accepting attitude rather than resentful or grumbling, knowing that God is in control? See, patient endurance says, I, I will stay in this marriage because it's for better or for worse. Patient endurance says, I will trust him to do the same for my spouse over time. This church also hates the work of the Nicolaitans. Not a lot of background on this group other than that they are an apparent heretical group that was teaching um, that the, the, the Christians were able to partake in kind of the adulterous culture and kind of try to blend that into the church. Their name means victory people, and we know that Christ hated their works. We're not just called to condemn and kind of walk away from evil and just sense of like, I don't do that anymore. We're called to actually hate evil. We're called to hate the things that Christ hates. So again, this place on the surface is a place that I think I'd probably want to be a part of. But looks can be deceiving. And just because it looked like they're doing well, it doesn't always mean that that's the case. Just because their life looks good on the outside, it doesn't mean that it's not headed for disaster. And just because the marriage looks like it's all put together, doesn't mean that it is. Just because Jesus is commending them for their doctrinal vigilance and their good works, their patient endurance, it doesn't mean that something's not off. Point number two, Jesus rebukes his church. But I have this against you, verse 4, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Again, imagine that Sunday service, church in Ephesus, a little house church, I would imagine. They're gathered together. They receive a letter from John dictated by Christ himself, and they're being encouraged and built up and commended for their works, and it all sounds so good. And then to hear those words, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You walked away from your spouse after 33 years of patient endurance. This is devastating. It's terrifying. Are we not afraid of the same thing? Could it be that in the beginning it was all so clearly about love for Christ, the all-consuming focus, and then slowly the focus began to shift elsewhere? 
It's a subtle shift. It's a slow fade. You hear Mike say a lot of the times it's a series of small compromises over time. It's the upstream unrepented sin. They focused on how active they were in their toil, their, their works, the things that they were doing. Their focus became testing false doctrine and hating the works of false teachers. They told themselves that they were so sound and pure and right that maybe their focus was just enduring patiently and just bearing up and kind of grinding it out. Do we remember the intense love that we had for Christ the day that we were delivered from the domain of darkness? When our spiritual eyes and hearts were open to the truth of the gospel. One of my favorite stories, and not because I'm biased, this is my wife. She shares a lot of the times her testimony, which is amazing. But she remembers the moment. She remembers the moment that she was, we were living in Germany at the time. She's driving down the road. She's by herself, and she's at a red light, and this is overwhelming. Ambush by the Holy Spirit. Tears the whole thing. She remembers that moment when her eyes were opened to the truth of the gospel. Her, her sinful nature before a holy God in desperate need for a Savior in Christ. She remembers just seeing the world differently in an instant and not in some like ethereal sort of sense. It was different. The Bible became more clear to her. Or maybe for some, it, for, for, for you, it was, it was like me, my story, where it was more of a long process as stubborn as I am, the Lord relentlessly pursuing me to where He finally broke my legs, is the way I put it, brought me to the end of myself, and I had nowhere else to turn but to Him. Do we remember that? Do we remember that love that we had at first? Jesus says here, in all your deeds, all your doctrinal vigilance and in your endurance, you left me. I'm no longer your focus. You traded the primary for the secondary. And you're, you're running on the relational fumes of what you once had. The light of our relationship is slowly dying out and you don't even see it because you've lost sight of me. Earlier on in my walk as a young believer, growing in maturity in Christ, uh, was introduced to Reformed uh, theology, and it was and is still awesome. I'm a Reformed guy. Don't let me, don't miss that point. Um, but I started to become obsessed with it, obsessed to the point of just reading systematic theologies and Augustine and Spurgeon. Like, those were my primary books. I was reading more to gain knowledge about God rather than reading His actual Word and growing in relationship with Him. It was an obsession I became more concerned with people's positions on things like the doctrine of election and predestination rather than salvation by grace through faith alone. I remember being on a job site on the side of the road back in Vermont, and I'm talking with this guy. His name is Kevin. Never forget it. And I'm witnessing to this guy. I'm just poking holes in his worldview, not even getting to his heart, sharing the gospel, just tearing this guy down, just this presuppositional, apologetic, circular reasoning wasn't going anywhere. 
friend of mine, employee of mine, Tim, comes up, solid believer, on fire for the Lord, uh, starts to hear our conversation. He hops in, and he just starts going to this guy's heart, man. He's like sharing the gospel. He's loving on this guy so good. And, uh, and then he says something that kind of caught me off guard, and I grabbed it. And I was like, wait, what did you just say? I don't even remember what, the, what it was. And uh, so, so the focus goes from loving on this guy, sharing the gospel with him, to now an argument between two believers on a secondary or tertiary issue. And this guy's standing there watching us. And, it, and he finally says to us, he goes, <laughs> this is why I don't want anything to do with all you people. That convicted me. He said, I, couldn't even t- I, I wouldn't even know if you were a Christian or not. I was trying to win arguments. The conversations I was having with people were not to share the love of Christ. It was to show them how well, about how right I was based on the knowledge I was gaining about him. I was showing them all the good things I was doing for the church. Church, we can love a lot about Christ without actually loving Christ. Please, don't get me wrong. This is not a doctrine, theology, bash fest, okay? This stuff is important. We need to have an accurate and right understanding of God and who He is. It's very important. Paul tells Timothy to watch your life and doctrine. But just hating error and always correcting and winning arguments or whatever is, is not the same as loving Christ. Just being active for the sake of being active, just showing up here is not the same as adoring Christ. Enduring hardship is not the same as enjoying Christ. So how does this happen? How does this happen? How do we go, how do we go from having our eyes opened <clears throat> to the truth Understanding the free gift of grace, it's free. Being raw, unfiltered, confessing sin, surrendered fully to Him. How do we go from that to arguing with people about secondary things? Are we doing this? Am I doing this still? I'll, this text worked me over. The Holy Spirit ambushed me on this one. Are we confessing and repenting of sin? Are we fully surrendered to Christ? Are we all in? Are we just trying to win arguments? Are we just trying to look good? Are we just trying to flex the theological brain power? I'll confess, man, I was, I was sharing with Kent the other night. We were having dinner at his house and just talking about this. And, and I, I just, man, I, I still can be critical towards others and judgmental. I was sharing this with my D group too, just in like a pharisaical kind of sense. And I need to repent of that. 
It happens when we elevate secondary truths, topics, or issues above the gospel centrality, right? We, we abandon our love for Christ. And just like the husband and wife whose relationship grows cold and distant, ours will too. Church, this cooling, this cooling and growing distant towards Christ leads to apathy. This cooling off, it leads to apathy, which is a love for something else. It leads to, to compromise, which can lead to corruption and eventually, over time, to death and judgment. And we're going to see later on in the, the last letter of what Christ does to those who have cooled off. So what do we do? Point number three, Jesus commands and promises His church. Verse 5 through 7, Christ says this, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So Christ gives them three things to do. He says to remember, repent, and redo. Remember from where you've fallen, repent, and then redo the works that you were doing at first. And to redo those things. And I believe Scripture tells us what they were doing at first and what they're to remember. So if you would, let's look at Acts 19. We're still in Ephesus here. Acts chapter 19, it'll be on the screen, I believe. <clears throat> Starting in verse 11, here's what was happening. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched the, his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had spirits, evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now the seven sons of Sceva, or excuse me, the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, who are you? And the man in whom the, was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. They got the trash pounded out of them. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them, and all the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Verse 18, here it is, ready? Also, many of those who are now believers... Now believers came confessing, divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, $6 million. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So here's what happened. Here's what was going on in Ephesus at this time that Christ is telling them to remember. 
Ephesus, dark, temple of Artemis, wicked city, pagan rituals. And in the midst of this is this group of men and women who are coming to know Christ. They're getting saved out of this. They're coming together in the gathering. They're confessing sin. They're saying, here's what I've been guilty of. Here's where I'm sinning. I need Christ. I need His grace. I need the cross. It's the believers that are doing this. This isn't some random guy off the street coming in here saying, here's the things I'm struggling with. It's the believers coming in and saying, I need the cross of Christ all the more today than I did when I first heard it. God, help me. This place is raw. It's real. It's filled with repentance. No one's walking around wearing the cape. How you doing? Fine. We're so good. Fine. Fine. So what happened? Maybe they were more concerned with what they were doing, checking the boxes, suffering well, worried about testing false teachers and doctrine. Maybe Ephesus got too pretty. Christ is saying, get back to that. Get back to what you were doing at first. Return to me. Remember the gospel where your affections were for me and not for your works. Remember me. Remember the gospel. Repent. Suffer well. Endure patiently. Turn back to me, your first love. If not... He'll remove their lampstand, the church, not the church building. They'll be snuffed out, treated like apostate Israel, unable to partake in the promise to come. This is serious. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Other words, Jesus is saying here, are you listening? Are you listening? Does everybody hear what I just said? That's what Christ is saying. And this transcends to all who hear this. This is for all Christians, for all churches, for all time. We need to understand the dangers of leaving our first love. So to those of us who hear, to the conquerors, the overcomers, the one who conquers is the one who hears this, and it's a call to heed what has been said through these letters. The one who conquers is the condition of each of the seven churches who will receive this promise of salvation. Next he says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life. Remember it? Why is this here? He's pointing us back to the garden. to remember from where we first fell. But more importantly, he's, it's a picture of the forgiveness to come, the promise to come. G.K. Beale puts it like this. 
to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, is alluded again at the conclusion of the book as a picture of forgiveness, where it's a clear reference, a clear reference, listen to this, to restoration of mankind to its original unfallen state. The tree of life standing for the presence of God. Church, let us have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. Christopher, if you'll come on up. This is the promise. The church at Ephesus, excuse me, the church at Ephesus on the surface, they appeared to have it all figured out, put together, playing the game, so to speak, doing all the right things, saying all the right terms, thinking that the number of things that they were doing, the long-suffering, the patient endurance, the testering of false doctrine and false apostles and teachers, they thought that's what it was to love Christ. Like the marriage that's focused on everything but the relationship, they're just playing the game. They're so focused on everything else. Ephesus missed the point here. They'd abandon their love for Christ. Risen Hope, we are not off limits here. No church is off limits to this. They were commended. Commended by Christ Himself. I think we would be commended in a lot of things by Christ. I think we're doctrinally solid. But let's, let's not forget our first love. Are we, just, are we playing the game? Mike said a couple weeks ago, is this, is this, are we honoring him with just our lips and our works and not our heart? Why are we here? Do we love him? So thankful that Christ warns us. Let's be reminded that the Son of Man, this Ancient of Days, the one who walks with us, he's with us, he's in our midst. The one who holds the universe in his hands, he sees us, he knows us, he loves us, he's not shocked by us. He knows our hearts. He offers us hope to remember, repent, get back to me. Don't lose sight of him. Don't forget the gospel. Cling to Christ, hope in God. And to all that will hear this, the Spirit says, he promises for us to eat in the tree of life in a new and better garden, in the new heavens and the new earth, where we'll be free from sin, no longer having to endure the trials patiently. No longer being distracted by anything other than Him, Himself, because we will finally be in His presence forever. So church, there's work to be done. There's, there are errors to refute, doctrine to clarify and to champion. There's a race to run. But church, above all else, there is a Savior to love. Let's pray.